Lord, we thank you that we can be together. The Fellowship of the Saints is such a wonderful privilege. We thank you for the way that you've designed our communion with one another to strengthen our faith and to glorify your name. We thank you that as we meet now, we do so um, in your presence. And so we ask you to open our eyes. As the psalmist said, help us to understand new, beautiful things out of your law. Lord, we come with lots of needs, and you know each one of them. And so we pray that as we now submit ourselves to your word, you would also help us to cast our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. And we pray all these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what they say, crime doesn't pay. Uh, be sure your sins will find you out. You reap what you sow. Disobedience brings with it consequences. Someone has said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't that right? Any sinners here that could say, yeah, I know about that. Well, we see some of those truths lived out now in the next installment of David's life. Uh, don't we all, don't we all hope that we will not be held accountable for every one of our wrongs? Don't we all want to be treated with grace? Well, today's topics are kind of a conglomeration of some of those ideas, meaning that uh, we're going to be faced with some hardcore rebellion. And in this next section of Scripture, we're also going to see some of the harsh realities of the consequences of sin. But we'll also find a promise of restoration which fits in with our celebrating the Lord's Supper together because the Lord says to us, broken sinners, wounded sinners, come, come to me. We're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 263. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, the first 15 verses. Well, actually, we're going to start with verse 27 of chapter 11. Uh, that helps us create something of a bridge from what we've seen before. So let's look at that. Uh, first, 
2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. Here's what we read. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her, that is Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife, and he bore and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. They've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. What do we see here? Well, I'd like to try to unpack these verses by focusing on God's pursuing grace and then the harsh repercussions of sin and finally the, the promise of restoration. You know, really, 1 Samuel, <clears throat> excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 7 is sort of the high point of David's life. The Lord comes to him and he says, I'm going to make a promise to you. You're going to be a great man and I'm making an everlasting commitment to you. 
there will always be a man on your throne. It's a great, great promise. And then if you remember, a couple of weeks after we looked at that, Agilon reminded us that in the life of David, we very soon are going to come to the edge of a cliff and fall off it. And we are just about there. One commentator said in reference to chapter 11, we all wish that it read something like this, that verse 1 of, 1 Samuel, of 2 Samuel 11 was, and David died and was laid to rest with his fathers and his son reigned in his stead. But it doesn't say that at all. It brings us to this terrible, terrible account. David's self-deception, his lust, his passion, his adultery, his murder, his self-exoneration. And it just makes us cringe. And we think to ourselves, how could the king of Israel have ever done this? Well, what we see here is the very high price of moral and ethical autonomy. David acts this way. I can live without reference to God. I don't have to consult him and I don't have to follow him. I can make my life work on my own terms. Anybody here ever had that thought? Thank God for his pursuing grace. Let's look at it now as it unfolds here in chapter 12. You know, chapter 11 has all these sends. David sends somebody here and somebody there and somebody else over here. And we don't read anything about David. Uh, we don't read anything about the Lord until the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. There, there's just a passing reference. What David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And maybe God's absence in chapter 11 just underscores the fact that he was not at all in David's mind. But that is not the case as we come to chapter 12. Notice how it begins. God sent Nathan. David's the big king. He's going to send people hither and yon, but now God is going to send his prophet to the king. And you'll also see, as God pursues David in his grace, how he uses a story with which David would be very familiar. He tells a story about, a, uh, about two shepherds. One is a rich man, and the other is a poor man, and the rich man, out of his power, decides that he will feed a guest with the poor man's lamb. And he takes it. And he also communicates to David something of a way in which a king would be sensitive. A king was responsible for upholding the law of the land. 
He was to make sure that people loved God and loved their neighbor. And the narrator here also uses language that David has heard before from the very mouth of Uriah. Did you see it? It's right there in verse 3. As he's telling the story about this little, uh, this poor man's lamb, he gives us a long description. There are very few words that are relegated to the rich man, but lots of detail about the poor man. He had this, poor, he had this little lamb, and it used to eat with him and drink with him and lie with him. And where else did David ever hear those words? Remember? Last week. He brings Uriah the Hittite back to try to entice him to go home to cover up the fact that Bathsheba is pregnant. And Uriah responds and he says, I go home and eat with my wife and drink with my wife and lie with my wife. I won't do it. God pursues David with his grace and now David is really angry. And he says, literally, this rich man, he calls him a son of death. This son of death, he ought to die. And he ought to make retribution fourfold over because I'm the king and this is the law of the land. And uh, it, it's really a, a kind of a graphic verb that the narrator uses here. He talks about David is very angry and the, the word is his nostrils flare. You know how when people get angry? That's what happens. Now, what makes David so angry? The injustice, certainly. But the way he casts it is, he says, this rich son of death had no pity. And it's the same word that's used when Pharaoh's daughter opens the little, little basket in the Nile and sees Moses there. She has pity. This rich man has no pity. Now let's just pause for a moment here. Pity, that's an important concept, isn't it? Being compassionate, being merciful to people. Who are those within your sphere of influence that need some compassion today? Need someone to speak a comforting word, to be caring. You know, Micah tells us, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And Ephesians 4.32, be kind 
one to another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. God is pursuing David with his grace, even as David is angry and sees the injustice of the situation. Which takes us then to this next idea that there, are, there can be some pretty harsh repercussions when we sin against the Lord. What happens next? Well, Nathan says in verse 7, David, you are the man. Very blunt, to the point. Imagine a prophet saying that to a big king who thinks he can send people here and there and wherever he chooses. You are the man. And then there's a series of references in this next section, uh, verses, I think it's 7 through 12. The Lord says this, and the Lord that, and the Lord something else. The Lord is establishing his place in David's life as king and judge. And he says, verse 7, I anointed you. And then verse 8, I gave you, and I gave you, and I gave you. And then verse 9, but you have despised the word of the Lord. How did David despise the word of the Lord? Well, we're told here, by doing evil. Doing that which God says is evil. And it reminds us now, uh, this, verse, this section in, in verse 9 reminds us of what we saw in chapter 11, verse 25, and then 27. And now this is the third time. Um, David says to Joab, don't regard the death of Uriah as something which is evil in your sight. I will tell you how to interpret his murder. Don't regard it as evil. And then verse 27, God says what David had done was evil, and now it pops up again. You've despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in the sight of of the Lord. You have killed and you have taken. And if you'll notice, he says here, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, you've taken his wife to be your wife, you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Doesn't matter whether you stab him with a sword yourself, David, or if you have the Ammonite sword to do him in. It's all murder, however you want to cut it. It's all murder. And then notice verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. You've used the sword to kill Uriah. Now I'm going to use the sword. Evil will never depart from your house, David. What you did in private, I'm going to do in public display. Public humiliation, David, that's what's coming down the pike because of your sin. And we might pause here again and ask ourselves, have you experienced any public humiliation? 
You know how that makes you want to shrivel? I, I can tell you, I have. It just, you know, it's an awful thing. There are repercussions, and there are harsh repercussions when people sin against the Lord. And so we might want to pause here and ask the question, is this threat against David an expression of grace? How can that be? You know how it is. It's verse 13. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's a gracious thing for the Lord to take somebody who is rebellious, 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 and bring him to the place where he bows in submission and acknowledges his wrongdoing before the Lord. Isn't it? It is a gracious thing week after week for us to be reminded of God's law so that we can confess our sins to him in our worship service. He wants us at that point submissive to him, not being big, proud, strong, powerful people that have it all together. It's also a very gracious thing of the Lord having humbled David to now give him these words at the end of verse 13. You won't die. Your sin has been taken away. Isn't that just about the best language you would ever want to hear? It kind of reminds me of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess what we know to be true. Lord takes care of the whole kit and caboodle. God has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's the promise of restoration here, even though David is reminded now in verse 14 that the child that Bathsheba bears is going to die. The son is going to die as a result of the sins of the father. Now, let's just stop for a moment and say to ourselves that these verses are uh, prophecy. This little section is the Lord telling David what is going to happen down the road. And how does prophecy work in the life of God's people? Well, it's a reminder of what's coming 
And it's also ultimately a reminder of the new world into which God is leading his people. And so it's an invitation to come and inhabit that new world. What can we say about the new world that's before the people of God who have been forgiven for all their sins? It's one where God's word is honored, unlike David. It's one where love and compassion are expressed toward one's neighbor, unlike David. It's one where people turn from their sin, like David is brought to do by God's grace. In other words, this passage really points us in this direction. Keep short accounts with God. You sin? Acknowledge it quickly and turn from it. Isaiah reminds us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. C.S. Lewis, you know about him a little bit, don't you? His mother died when he was a little boy. And then his father abandoned him uh, emotionally. He's very gifted intellectually, but the colleagues with whom he worked in the university, uh, they really rejected him. Late in life, he met a woman he married and then had the sad experience of her of going through her death. Well, he wrote a book entitled The Problem of Pain. If you haven't read it, it's a good book to read. And part of what he says is this. Uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And he screams at us in our pain. It's, then he goes on to say that, that God's God's shouting at us in our pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, now we're going over the cliff here, we're certainly reminded that all leadership, uh, is, all human leadership is flawed and we probably don't need much explanation of that or examples of that. All human leadership is flawed. David is God's chosen, beloved king, but he can't hang on to the kingdom by his own merits. He needs God's grace, doesn't he? And if there is to be a lasting kingdom, it can't be rooted in human effort. It has to be based on grace because we don't have it in us. And I'm so glad to be able to say, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. And so, let me encourage you, based on this passage, to come to the Lord with your sins, like David did. Come to Jesus with your sins. He waits to welcome you. And he waits to welcome you at this table. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these hard words that we've looked at this morning. I pray that we would move toward you with our brokenness and our rebellion, that you would soften our wicked hearts, and that you would help us to flee from sin as we contemplate the, the cost. It'll take us farther than we want to go. It'll keep us longer than we want to stay. It'll cost us far more than we want to pay. Thank you for our Savior. We pray these things in his name, amen.